We are definitely in the middle of summer. <laughs> People are traveling, and uh, most of our youth are in Asheville this week on a mission trip, so we need to continue to hold them in prayer um, throughout this week. Let's pray now. May the walls around our hearts and minds come crumbling down as your spirit cries out, calling us to dedicate all that is holy to you. Hold me up, God, that I might lift you up. Amen. So as I said before, it is week two of our summer worship series, Not Your Mama's Bible Stories. And um, during the summer, we're taking a second look at many of those Bible stories that you likely heard as a child, but haven't had a chance to really study in depth as an adult, and very likely haven't heard preached before. In large part, I chose this particular series because in response to the worship surveys that went out earlier this year, Many of you responded that you would like to hear more stories from the Old Testament, and in particular, you had a lot of questions about the apparent differences between who we often think of as the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God. There's a lot of questions about why is it that the God of the Old Testament seems to be so much harsher than the God of the New Testament? Why is the God of the Old Testament so much more judgmental. It seems as though this God in the Old Testament sort of lurks over a smite button, just waiting for an opportunity to press. And what's up with some of the bizarre things that God often says and does, and even commands God's people to do on God's behalf? I mean, there's just a lot in the Old Testament that it's hard to make sense of. It's hard to reconcile. The story of the walls of Jericho is a prime example. Like many of the stories that we will hear during the summer, when you read it in its entirety, the story raises some very serious theological questions. I mean, one claim in particular that this story makes about God is very hard to understand, much less accept. As children, we're told in this story that God tells Joshua the man who is leading the Israelites, that God has given Jericho to them. This is the promised land that God in covenant promised them through Abraham. And then God provides them with precise instructions so that the walls of Jericho will fall. So Joshua, as Lydia said, tells the people God's plan and they follow that plan. They march around the walls, one time a day for six days carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which, as you remember, the Ark of the Covenant represents God's presence to the people of God. So they march around one time a day for six days, blowing their trumpet, and on the seventh day, they make seven trips around, again, with their trumpets going, and at the end, scream for all they're worth. And the reason they're called to scream is because this is supposed to be a celebration in anticipation and deep faith about what God has promised. They are trusting that that's happening right now. And according to the story, the Israelites do exactly what God instructed and the walls fall. 
What's not emphasized in the children's story is that according to the biblical account, once the walls fall down, they are to kill every living man, woman, child, and beast that they encounter within those walls. And they're supposed to do this because God said so. Listen to this, to this couple of verses here. It says, on the seventh day, they got up at dawn. They circled the city in this way seven times. It was only on that day that they circled the city seven times. The seventh time, the priests blew the trumpets. Then Joshua said to the people, shout, because the Lord has given you the city. The city and everything in it is to be utterly wiped out as something reserved for the Lord. Now, over the years, biblical scholars have performed all sorts of theological mental gymnastics in an effort to explain what's going on here. It is not something that's easy to understand. Traditionally, there have been about four common approaches. There are those who justify this particular act because they say the Canaanites were a wicked and godless people and therefore deserved this particular treatment. There are others who say, well, you know, it was actually a corrective measure. It was God's effort to um, steer people away from the ethic of plunder and exploitation. If the people who were conquering Jericho were going to have to destroy everything behind the walls, well, then they would not be motivated by greed or by personal gain. Then there are others who just completely ignore the whole situation and they desperately hope that we won't notice um, or, or that we'll regard it as a minor matter. And... Then there are those who take what is called a quasi-Marcionite approach. <laughs> a Marcionite um, is a person who followed the teachings of Marcion of Pontus, who lived in the second century, and he believed that there were actually two gods. There was a god of the Old Testament who was this vain, angry, judgmental God who was actually responsible for creating the material world of which we humans were a part. And this world creator God is actually a demonic power. Then there's the God of the New Testament. And this God of the New Testament is so gracious and kind and filled with love that it's impossible for us to even describe or express in any words um, fully the nature and character of this particular God. Now, it's this God who, out of sheer goodness, sent his son to save humans from the material world and to bring them to a new home. This is not actually an act of substitutionary atonement or vicarious atonement. My fellow Shippians out there will remember <laughs> what that is. Um, this is not... Jesus standing in for us to atone for our sin, this is actually strictly a legalistic act that canceled out any and all claims of the creator God on humans. So the people who take this particular approach, they say, 
Well, the God who sanctions genocide is the God of the Old Testament. And the New Testament God has evolved. It is not an easy concept to explain. I mean, this idea that God would call people to completely annihilate another people on God's behalf, I mean, it's just not consistent with who we know God to be in Jesus Christ, right? That's what Adam Hamilton would say. Adam Hamilton says, we are Christians, so we understand Jesus to be the unmitigated word of God against whom all other words of scripture must be measured or tested because in Jesus Christ, we get to see what it looks like to actually live authentically into the faith that we claim. Since we never once ever see Jesus cite genocide as a means of reconciling our differences with our enemies, we have to conclude that maybe that doesn't express the timeless nature and heart of God. Maybe actually this expresses the timeless or the heart of the person who is writing the story. Maybe it's representative of the author's culture and worldview, their perspective. So for example, we know that this particular practice was common in warfare at that time, and the Israelites, they were a product of their time, so it may have been common for them to think that God would use violence to accomplish God's purposes. There was a Moabite stone that was discovered back in 1868, and it was dated to about 840 BCE. And on this stone, it describes King Misha of Moab's victory over the Israelites. They worshiped the Canaanite god, Chemosh, who, according to this stone, ordered King Misha to attack and slay every man, woman, and child because they were devoted to their god, Chemosh. So maybe it would make sense to the Israelites that God would use violence. But is that consistent with who we know God to be in Jesus Christ? Because We know, we read in the Gospels over and over again, Jesus calling us to love our neighbor. And Jesus does not place any limits on who our neighbor is. Turns out our neighbor is everyone, including, Jesus says, our enemies. We hear this from the one who hangs out with sinners, who ministers to prostitutes and adulterers. I mean, the God that we know in Jesus Christ actually hung on a cross praying for those who'd put him there. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And we know that God so loved the world, the world, that God sent God's only Son. I don't know, it doesn't really sound much like a God who would sanction mass murder to me. Now, to be sure, there was a division between the Israelites and Jericho. There was conflict there. The land of Canaan had been promised by God to the Israelites, and as they crossed from the, from the west, uh, excuse me, from the east bank of the Jordan to the west bank of the Jordan on dry land, 
their very first obstacle or opportunity, maybe, that they face is this city that rises up before them, Jericho. It's a city that's situated in a prime location. Not only is it by the river, but it sits on a spring-fed oasis. Now, they are fully aware of how desirable their city is. According to scripture, this is why they've built a wall all the way around it. And this is why they have a fierce army to protect themselves against any enemies who might seek to take it from them. It's not really all that different from much that's happening in our world today, really. Talk of walls and trade wars and limits on immigration, travel bans, not just in our country, around the world, and it's not just the political landscape, but in our personal lives. I mean, we humans, we do have a tendency to build walls, whether they are physical, literal walls or metaphorical walls. We build walls between ourselves and relationships, in our marriages for sure, sometimes even between a parent and a child. In ministry, it's hard sometimes. We, we place walls between ourselves and our community, between the mission field, us and the mission field. We find it difficult to warmly and completely and with open and generous hearts welcome everyone from the community to come to be with us, to open ourselves to the notion of being changed by them. One of the things that I've learned that's uh, come to my attention as we've gone through this youth discernment process is the tendency in recent decades for the church, and not just this one, but the church, to delegate youth ministry sort of to the outer orbit of the church. You know, they have their own room and we have those people who do that ministry with the teenagers. There are walls that we build even between the generations that we have here together in this church. Frank Webster, our band leader um, for the nine o'clock service, he was telling me a story this morning about his children um, Jameson and Sophie over the weekend they were playing Minecraft together which is this video game if you don't if you're not real clear on what that is where you build houses or buildings or realities um, and they were having a competition where they were both going to build uh, a room but they wanted to keep it secret um, they had 15 minutes to do this and then at the end they were going to reveal and see what everybody had done and um, decide who had won this competition. So they built a wall, you can do this in Minecraft, they built a wall between their two rooms so that they couldn't peek and see what the other one was doing. As it came time to reveal, though, their spaces to each other, they burned the wall and what happened was the fire spread and destroyed Jameson's room. <laughs> the cautionary tale, first of all, that even as children, we think of protecting our space, our creative process, whatever. So Jericho had built this wall to protect themselves, and God had promised Jericho to the Israelites as part of their covenant agreement. So as they camped outside the city, God spoke to Joshua through an angel and revealed to Joshua this strategy that he had for taking the city. 
It's interesting because in actuality, as best as we can tell, given our current archaeological findings and what we know historically, Jericho really would not have been a fortified city at the time of Israel's conquest. There wouldn't have been any walls, and very likely very little in the way of military defense. We also know that this story was written during the Babylonian exile, hundreds of years after the conquest of Canaan. So the historian who was telling the story would have been particularly nostalgic about the land that they had been promised because at the time of the writing, they actually did not possess that land. In an ironic twist of fate, they'd been conquered and forced to leave it. So stories about Israel's heroes and God's promises were written to inspire captive Israel to have courage and to commit themselves absolutely once again to God in order to continue to hope for God's eventual fulfillment of that promise. So from a theological point of view, it seems that the ultimate and final goal of Joshua is to compel its readers back to a full faithfulness to God, back to complete and utter trust in God, without whom they can never hope to realize the freedom and the full life that God promises. As it's attested in one of the last verses of the book of Joshua, where it says, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, whether Jericho had literal, physical walls at the time that this story would have been unfolding or not, it is true that we humans have a tendency to build walls between us and our perceived adversaries. We build walls that divide us from one another, that divide us from our mutual well-being, actually. These walls that we erect... Because of this barrier, it allows us to misunderstand one another, to assume things about each other. These walls even allow us the distance to launch violent words over, or even to launch actual missiles over without ever having to actively engage the humanity that's on the other side. Something that I find really interesting and that I think opens this up to a whole new understanding is that the word that gets translated in this story as utterly wiped out as something reserved for the Lord is the Hebrew word harim. And more accurately translated, in its noun form, it simply means devoted to the Lord. There's not, that, there's not an inherent sense of destruction. Which makes me wonder what the actual purpose was. There's a lot that we can't know about this Bible story, but it seems clear to me that when we listen to and follow what God calls us to do, miraculous things do happen. Even seemingly insurmountable, highly defended walls can crumble and tumble down. 
And when we're able to encounter all that's on the other side of that wall as belonging exclusively to God, when we can dedicate all that is on either side of the wall to God, only then will our differences truly be resolved. Only then will our instinct towards self-protection truly be dismantled, particularly with the understanding and the compassion and the grace that our God so freely shares with us. Everything on both sides of that wall, on both sides of all the walls that we create, belong to God. And when we can recognize that, when we can set all that apart, suddenly the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, both, we see, desire that all walls will fall. God and Jesus Christ tore the veil that separated us from God. destroyed the walls that we erect between ourselves and our Creator. It's my prayer and it's my belief that God desires that all walls would fall. Let us pray. Loving and gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for this community of believers. We give you thanks for the mission field in which you've planted us and for the world in which we live. We ask God that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, that we might open our whole lives, trusting that you are on both sides of every wall, of every issue, of every conflict, that you are present, pouring grace out. Help us, God, to trust you and to follow you, leading with the grace you've given us. God, as we offer all that you've given us to you, we know that you are present and that you're blessing our gifts. We pray that you would Multiply them and guide us in how best to use them so that all those outside these walls might come to know you more dearly and that we might become their friends. In Christ's name we pray, amen.